You're listening to Bloom in Tech with David Bloom. Hey, everybody. I'm David Bloom, your host for Bloom in Tech. Welcome back. Glad to have you here. I've been doing a fair amount of writing and thinking lately about what you could call, generally speaking, truth in digital advertising. This week, of course, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey and Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg testified before the Senate Intelligence Committee and the House Energy and Commerce Committee on what they're doing to help combat foreign interference on their platforms. Sandberg even acknowledged that, quote, we were too slow to spot this and too slow to act. Yes, it is on you folks at Facebook, but also it's on all of us who were more or less unwitting co-conspirators to the weaponization of our social media. I hope the social media giants and the government keep stepping up their efforts to stamp out the fake, the false, and the destructive. It seems like some of us are trying to do our share, too, and most notably by disconnecting from social media. A Pew Research Center report that came out this week said that as many as one in four people have disconnected from their Facebook accounts. I don't know if that really means they are turning off and getting rid of Facebook on their mobile and their PC devices, or if that's just that they're spending less time. I mean, sometimes people say they're disconnecting and they're just doing less. Many say that, maybe not all of them have done that, but I suspect many are, are trying at the least to reduce the amount of time they spend on Facebook. I think a, a reduced footprint there is not a bad idea, even if it has some uses. Anyway, I think that's probably a great sign for the health of the nation and its uh, long-term future if we can just maintain a little more balance in our interactions online and who we interact with. One story this week mentioned the billions, with a B, scam ads that Google must routinely remove from its pages. Many of those scam ads are to sites that claim they'll help you with customer support for Apple and other electronics companies. Then there's the fake user purges that Twitter and Facebook have been doing in recent months, even if it has been problematic for their bottom lines. Twitter alone eliminated 6% of its alleged users in the recent purges, and the companies, along with Microsoft, have been involved in several takedowns of problematic pages from what appears to be bad actors working on behalf of the Russian and Iranian governments. On a more down-to-earth level, there's the issue of follower fraud. Creator IQ and Fullscreen this past week released a white paper that identified three flags they use to identify influencers who may have large numbers of fake followers. Those flags included an unusually large number of followers from unexpected countries, unusually low engagement rates, and sudden spikes in growth, particularly if the engagement doesn't grow too. I've written a piece on the white paper in Forbes this week, and I suggest you check it out. In an era when many brands are hiring influencers based on their ability to reach large crowds, there's a built-in incentive to artificially boost your following with fake accounts. Brands are getting a clue that they need to use different metrics than just reach to better get value when they're doing influencer marketing. I was heartened to see back in June at Cannes Lion that Unilever, one of the biggest advertisers in the world, put forward a whole series of transparency initiatives, one of which is that we're not going to do business with people that buy fake followers. And they also committed not to buy fake followers themselves. I think that's great. That's a really good step in the right direction. I also talked recently with James Creech, who is CEO of Paladin Software, which helps agencies run influencer campaigns. James, whose company is based in downtown Los Angeles, actually reached out to me first to be part of his podcast called All Things Video. 
We had a long, wide-ranging conversation over at his uh, offices there in downtown that I'm guessing we'll post soon on his site. I'll share it with you guys when it does. Then once we wrapped up the All Things video conversation, I turned the mic on James and grabbed some of his thoughts on follower fraud and influencer marketing. His perspectives are somewhat different from those of Creator IQ and Fullscreen because they actually occupy slightly different niches, but they're still quite complementary and I think in total very useful for anybody who's a brand trying to make their way with influencer marketing and for that matter, influencers themselves trying to protect themselves from some of the folks trying to grab onto their presence and take advantage of it. So give it a listen and let me know what you think. Hey everybody, this is David Bloom. I am here at Bloom in Tech with James Creech, CEO of Paladin Software. We are talking about influencer marketing and a lot of related topics that James and his company help oversee. We are downtown in the scenic headquarters of Paladin Software. I've just completed a conversation with James on my end as his guest for his podcast. Um, but welcome, James. Thanks, David. Great to be here. So let's start. Tell me just a little bit about Paladin and what you guys do and what it all means, because you said a lot of stuff that uh, I know, but not everybody knows uh, when we talk about how you track and, and make the most out of dealing with influencers. Sure. So Paladin is the essential influencer marketing platform for agencies and media companies. My background and that of my partners is in ad tech and working at influencer networks and influencer agencies. So we've done the work firsthand and understand a number of the challenges that lay therein. And so uh, we launched Paladin about three years ago with the goal of creating software to streamline that, make it easier for people and uh, save them some time. So our software helps with identifying the right influencers, leveraging a lot of data across YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Twitch to hone in on the perfect talent for your campaign, manage your existing talent relationships if you have exclusive, in many cases, non-exclusive talent partnerships, and then run campaigns soup to nuts. So packaging the talent for an advertiser, uh, tracking all the campaign deliverables and budgets, and ultimately providing real-time performance reporting to the client. So this is kind of an interesting time, I think, because influencer marketing is probably bigger than it perhaps has ever been. Um, it's a business that's only a few years old, really, but it is certainly all kinds of, of influencers count now, from the big ones that you've heard about down to uh, mid-tail and micro-influencers. Now we're getting into what I uh, like to call nano-influencers. We just had a controversy pop up about game companies reaching out to uh, kids with follow as few as a few hundred or a thousand or two followers and saying, hey, we'll give you some money over Venmo or PayPal, probably Venmo because they're using working with younger kids. We'll give you some money if you'll tweet out stuff about our games. That seems to me to open a lot of problems. But what, what's your take on all that and where is that going? You're right. It's a complicated landscape. Uh, there are a lot of challenges at the micro-influencer, nano-influencer level. In fact, we have uh, concerns, and I think th this has been reflected on the part of brands as well, that those campaigns don't actually deliver results, right? Uh, first, you have to wonder, who are these small influencers actually reaching? Is it uh, their close friends? Is it, uh, in fact, a real audience that will make a buying decision based on their activity? Or are you just essentially buying vanity metrics like views and likes? At the, at the other end of the spectrum, you have to worry about all of the challenges recently around fake followers, right? Anyone can 
buy likes or comments uh, and, and views to become an Instagram influencer. And so the platforms have a real task ahead of them to uh, differentiate between who has legitimate audience and who is pay to play in the hopes of getting these brand deals. And so particularly when brands are approaching young people, it opens up a host of issues and considerations, and they need to do that in the right way to ensure compliance, FTC, COPPA compliance, uh, but also just to follow general ethical guidelines and principles around the way that they can engage people to promote their brand. Well, I think this is interesting about follower fraud because I've uh, been thinking and writing about some of that stuff and some things that will be coming out soon about how you find it and and what do you do with it. And, and some of it, I guess I'd like to hear about how you guys deal with those issues. What's your approach? I mean, uh, I mean, are you trying to track this stuff down? The New York Times had a big uh, expose, I think, about Instagram follower fraud at the start of the year that opened a lot of eyes. In June, we had, uh, at Can Lion, we had the head of Unilever, one of the biggest CPG brand or, or uh, holding companies out there, say, we're not doing business with people who buy followers. We're not going to buy followers ourselves. We're going to lay out a, a set of standards before we let us in the way we operate and who we operate with. So there's a real effort by big companies now to clean this stuff up. How do you find them? How do you get away from it? How do you make it not happen? Well, it's a combination of a human layer and a data machine in a technology layer. And so there's some easy signals where you can spot a lot of this. Part of it is looking at how many people does an account follow versus follow it, right? That's typically a good indicator of its relative level of influence. You can also look to see if they're posting consistently and and posting about a similar topic or if they tend to post about a whole lot of uh, unrelated things in in a strange pattern. Maybe they're posting in multiple languages or from multiple locations, which uh, is odd, right? So those are some kind of easy ways to filter out, you know, someone that might have suspicious activity. And then there's a number of things that you can do with technology to understand, you know, what accounts are doing and who they're connected to. Are they impersonating a real person or are they a fake identity that's been created by looking at you know, a number of the, the metadata signals? And so we take that very seriously and ultimately we think it'll probably rest with the platforms. We've seen them respond in different ways. Twitter uh, did actually do a big cleanup and purged a lot of bot traffic and was, in fact, uh, penalized for it in the stock market. At the same time, Facebook and Instagram seem to not be doing much about it and getting penalized in the stock market for other things. You know, there's a long way to go, and it's a bit of a cat and mouse game because every time uh, the platforms or independent technology providers like uh, ourselves make advances in identifying and and, uh, removing fake followers, then the imposters get a little bit smarter. But I think the the best single source of, of truth is to leverage a trusted third party like Paladin or other software solutions that allow an influencer to authenticate and get real data direct from the source. So pull it directly from YouTube, Facebook, Instagram APIs, because you know that that traffic has been vetted and then leaning on the platforms to do their share as well. So that's part of what you guys do. Yeah, that's it's a big part of it is authenticating the data access and providing insight into not just the publicly available metrics like 
viewership, engagement, uh, and post activity for an influencer, but diving in deeper to, you know, what is the watch time? What do their engagement metrics look like on a historical basis? Uh, what is the true audience that's watching this content? If you are a U.S. brand trying to reach young women 18 to 34, you want to make sure that you're advertising with influencers that natively reach that group of consumers. It's interesting to me because I think that the follower fraud issue, obviously a huge thing, how we play that out also pretty fascinating to watch. But at the same time, you know, we are seeing people like Twitter, they did the purge day, which I, I wanted I wanted to make July twelfth an annual internet purge day for all of us where we clean out the people we don't want to follow anymore and, and all that. I think that should be like a national holiday. Spend that day cleaning out your, your stuff because it's middle of summer anyway. So that being said, we have influencer marketing bigger than ever, but more complicated than ever. What is the opportunity for a brand now with the questions on the top end, with the uncertainty at the bottom end that seem to be the new way to go? What's the opportunity? Well, you're right. It's a very complex landscape because as a new field, there are so many different players uh, in the space, right? There are people on the demand side, brands, their media agencies, increasingly PR agencies and other types of companies are getting into the game because they see this as a way of providing an additional service to their brand clients and trying to offer value and, and grow their businesses. And on the supply side, there are talent management companies, influencer networks and agencies that are also competing for talent and competing for brands' attention. So it makes it a very messy landscape. It's funny, I was uh, reading an article last night from Reza Studio 71, and he had done some work with their CTO, Mike Flynn, to quantify just how complex this industry is. And, and they t shared a recent case study of campaign where they submitted an RFP and four other parties did the same thing. Everyone was pitching the same talent. And Studio 71 manages that talent, has exclusive representation rights to that talent, and yet everyone who bid on this proposal recommended that same talent and was uh, seeking to represent them. So it, that's, that illustrates how complex the landscape is right now because it is so new. I think we'll see more consolidation in the space as time goes on and some people just don't make it and, and the brand standards for what a successful influencer campaign looks like increase. But there also is some work that needs to be done on, on the brand side to say, who owns this? Does it live with the social agency, the digital agency? Uh, do we go to an a in-house resource or a dedicated outsourced influencer marketing shop to do this work. That's what still needs to be figured out. That leads to another question, which I think is really important. I, it seemed to me that influencer marketing, when it started, was really about reach, just about reach. And that was really, I think, an outgrowth of brands' new CPMs. They understood, I go to uh, buy TV ads or its equivalent in, in print and, and, other, and radio, and I'm going to get X amount of eyeballs or ears or uh, readers. And that's what I'm going to pay for based on that. But paying just for reach in an era when you can't always be completely certain about what it is you're reaching seems to suggest we need to have different uh, metrics and to move away from reach and the CPM's hangover, shall we say. So engagement, you know, an audience, I mean, it seems like there's got to be some new metrics. So where are you seeing, are there trends that direction now? Absolutely. Uh, the, the change from a mass media era where there was just television or broadcast radio, and it was uh, an inefficient way to reach a lot of people because you'd end up wasting impressions. But 
in a sense, it was the only way. And now there are so many different channels to reach an audience that it's really about where does your audience live, right? How do you engage a super fan community that will have a true affinity for your product? And so we've seen uh, digital platforms, YouTube's a great example of this, of introducing new advertising standards and charging on a cost per view basis or a cost per engagement basis, cost per install for mobile apps. So that we're seeing that being pioneered as these different business models. And then also what is the metric that matters to the advertiser? And it really starts with the brand defining its goals and how it's going to achieve them. And of course, leveraging its media partners in order to do that. And so I think we're going to shift from reach and frequency model, very top of the funnel metrics. We've seen kind of a move towards more middle of the funnel metrics of engagement and, you know, are we hitting the right audience? Are they engaging with the content to really tracking, is this moving the needle? Is this resulting in higher sales, brand lift, uh, brand affinity? Those are the things that can be difficult to measure because there's this kind of multi-platform attribution problem. If I saw a Facebook ad, but then I do a Google search and later on I, I get a recommendation from an influencer and then I make the purchase, who is responsible for that? Is it these multiple touch points in the consumer journey? That's hard to do since the data is siloed between so many different sources today. But I think we're ultimately moving more towards bottom of the funnel results and brands are increasing the threshold and the requirements for what does a successful campaign look like. In journalism, attribution is pretty important too. So it's sort of amusing to finally see advertising come to the same sort of conclusion uh, it is complicated. I mean, uh, multi-source attribution. I mean, I guess maybe what we need to do is also evolve some some understanding of that, uh, the way that spins out from different places. And and it might it might be that influencer thing puts you over the top, but it is building awareness into engagement, into intent to buy, into I bought it. Yeah. I subscribed to it. I did whatever it is. I did. I took that action. Will some of that come as we just become more able to track everything about our audiences? I think so. Uh, we're already seeing that. You know, it, there's a difference between the influencer marketing space, and we do quite a bit of work with publishers and broadcasters as well. And for them, the ultimate currency is watch time, because where people choose to spend their time, that's the ultimate currency. And so the same is true for are they choosing to watch a YouTube video versus Netflix? That is something where there's a little bit more parity now between YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. It's where is the dedicated share of attention? Will we have similar and equivalent standards uh, for influencer marketing campaigns? We certainly hope so. But today, an engagement, a like or a comment on Facebook is not the same thing as it is on YouTube or it is on Instagram. And part of that is just the nature of the platforms and the, the needs that they fill for audiences. Part of it is, you know, brands are looking for a standard metric where they can use to quantify the value of what they're doing in digital, what they're doing in traditional media, out of home, et cetera. And that, that doesn't exist yet. So as data collection and analysis between these different sources improves, hopefully we'll work towards that in the future. You are one corner of this. Who out there is that you have to deal with or work with is able to pull across everything. Are you seeing anybody, you know, in, in physics, they talk about the grand unified theory of the creation of the universe, right? In physics. And I mean, we don't have a G, a gut, as they call it, G-U-T, yet it seems like for the media space, who's at least moving in that direction? That's a phenomenal question. I wish I had a better answer for you. It's, it's still so fragmented that I don't know that anyone is really canvassing the entire 
space. There are some interesting companies. A friend of mine at Portent.io has done a great job working with the studios on a combination of social listening and historical box office analysis to evaluate, you know, can we predict how a certain film is going to do on opening weekend? And so they are looking at digital signals as well as, I guess, more of the traditional metrics to evaluate, you know, how is this going to perform? And that's just one specific example in a very, you know, targeted industry. But I think we'll see more examples of that using a lot of data and careful analysis to see if we can predict performance of content or or a business um, using these signals. Thank you, James. This has been David Bloom with uh, Bloom and Tech. I am here with James Creech, CEO of Paladin Software. James, tell us where folks can find out more about you and your company. You can find Paladin at paladinsoftware.com and check us out on social. We post a lot on Facebook and LinkedIn, et cetera. You can find me at LinkedIn. That's probably the best source to connect with me. And then also encourage you to listen to the podcast, All Things Video, in which I get a chance to sit down and share some fascinating conversations with entrepreneurs and thought leaders in the industry like yourself. All right. Thank you so much, sir. And that's our show today. I really appreciate you guys tuning in. You know, James does some interesting stuff. The Creator IQ guys are doing some really amazing things. I got a chance to look at their dashboard and the information they have on millions and millions of influencers and tens of thousands of campaigns that they've run for various corporations. It's pretty fascinating stuff. If you're a data geek, it is a uh, happy playground to uh, noodle around in. Uh, I hope you will stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, check out my piece on Forbes about the Creator IQ full screen white paper. And I will see you soon. Over and out. You've been listening to Bloom in Tech. I am your host, David Bloom. Thanks so much. And our podcast has been sponsored in this episode by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Take care, everyone.